Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of The Full Life. We are so excited today to have a special guest, a fellow senior pastor woman that we celebrated all season long. We have another one. This is Jenny's show, man, today. We're going we're gonna to celebrate women pastors as we've been doing, so don't miss it. Welcome everyone to another episode of The Full Life. Thank you for joining us today. I am so excited to get to today's guest. We have so much to talk about. I I think you're just going to be blessed by her. But first, before we do that, let's start with an encouraging word for everyone today. And today's will come from Jenny. Well, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever time you are watching this I can't help but say it. This is the day the Lord has made and I will rejoice and be glad in it. I say that before everything I teach, before every program I go on, because it's important that we make a choice to rejoice and embrace the goodness of life. I've been in a series recently at our church um, about truth. It's called Veritas. What is truth? And we've been looking at truth versus different heresies. One of the things we were looking at was Gnosticism and Gnosticism I'm not going to get into the whole thing because I don't want to take an hour and uh, bore you with all of that, uh, although I find it quite intriguing and interesting information. But at the core of Gnosticism, the idea is escapism, getting out of this world because this world is bad. This world is dirty. This world is ugly. And in a way, it sort of is reflected in modern day Christianity through the mindset of I'll fly away, oh glory. We're all looking forward to, you know, going to heaven and and flying away and getting out of here because this life is difficult. But you see, this is not a difficult, terrible life. When you make a choice to rejoice, when you give your day to the Lord, when you trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding, he directs your steps and not everything is perfect. Not everything's going to be perfect. Jesus said in this world, you will have tribulation, but we can be of good cheer. Let's not be like the Gnostics who are looking forward to just getting out of this life. Let's embrace life and recognize, as Hank was sharing with us uh, recently, the scripture that says you were made in Ephesians for good works, that you should walk in them. One of my favorite quotes from the early church fathers is from Arrhenius, and I want to read it to you, although I should have it memorized. It says, the glory of the of God is the human person fully alive. The glory of God is the human person fully alive. Now, if you don't know who Irenaeus is, you need to look up the bishop, but he was basically a disciple of Polycarp and Polycarp was a disciple of John. So this this guy really knew he was close to the source. And to say a statement like that, the glory of God is, is us being fully alive, says that one of your callings in this world is to fully embrace life with everything. It is a good life. Yes, there are problems, but nothing that God cannot overcome when we give it to him. So rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Make this choice today and you're going to have a better day. And certainly, amen. indeed, amen. on this, uh, amen is right. Amen. <laughs> yeah. I was, I was like, and truly what you said, Jenny, is about, you know, living fully. I mean, that's what we hope everyone does that watches this program. And every program we do helps us to get a little bit of a fuller life, we hope. That's certainly our goal. And I believe that's the goal of today's guest. So let me introduce her now as well. 
Tarabeth Leach is a pastor at Christ Church of Oak Brook in the western suburbs of Chicago. She previously served as senior pastor of First Church of the Nazarene of Pasadena in Southern California and has pastored in Illinois and New York. She's a graduate of Olivet Nazarene University and Northern Theological Seminary. Tarabeth is a regular writer for Missio Alliance and writes and speaks widely about women in ministry and church leadership. And we're going to talk about her books. She's the author of two books, uh, three books, actually, with uh, the Enneagram. I forgot one, but the ones we'll talk about is Emboldened and Radiant. They're wonderful books. I am so excited that she's joining us today. Please welcome Tara Beth Leach. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. It's it's really our pleasure, and I think we'll we'll dive right in. I mean, certainly, on this program, we've had a lot. Uh, we have had a whole ch uh, show about biblical examples of women um, that have been leaders in the Bible. We have had uh, guests on where we've talked about the importance and we've celebrated the importance of women in leadership, in ministry, in teaching. We know that's not. The whole norm of the church yet it, it is changing, but it is not there yet. But I wanted to start with that uh, in in talking about embolden, where you you let's talk about your story first and how you heard God's call and and what were formative moments along your way, and then maybe some of the resistance moments you met in, in becoming a senior pastor. Yeah, I grew up in a family of priesters, um, which if you've never heard that phrase uh, before, we went to church on Christmas and Easter. Uh, we were very much cultural Christians where going to church and, you know, saying prayers uh, before bedtime and dinner time was what we did. But I never understood what it meant to have a relationship with God until I was a teenager through the ministry of Youth for Christ when Jesus got a hold of my life in a really, really powerful way. And shortly after that, it was a really dramatic conversion for me. I was just on fire and wanted to tell the whole world about Jesus. And shortly after that, I had a really dramatic call to ministry and where I just knew that God was calling me to be, to be a pastor. I wanted to preach the word to the masses. Jesus had changed my life so radically, and I wanted others to experience the same. And it's an amazing story of God really getting a hold of my entire family. I will save that story for another day, but um, God really moved my life in those teen years, and I couldn't imagine doing anything else but um, preaching about Jesus. And so I ended up enrolling in Olivet Nazarene University, studying youth ministry. And um, there I met my husband, Jeff Leach. He is an engineer. We've been married for 15 years. And um, right after that, we began the journey of partnering together in ministry, him as a layman and my partner, um, and uh, me as a pastor serving in local churches. And Early on, right before I got to Olivet, I still was really struggling with whether or not women could be pastors, like senior pastors. Um, I knew that, you know, I saw a lot of women speakers, but I did not see a lot of women pastors. And so I really struggled with that when I first got to Olivet. Um, but I went to a Nazarene institution and um, Nazarene Wesleyan Holiness denomination. Uh, they affir they've affirmed women since its inception. Uh, we've always had women pastors, except uh, what I really began to realize when I got out was, although we affirm women in ministry at the time, less than 6% of the pastors were women. And there was still a lot of 
um, systems within our denomination that was um, causing women to be sidelined. Um, and we weren't doing the best job at creating spaces for women. And so I experienced that right away um, out of college. I realized, oh my goodness, like here I went to this Nazarene institution and I got to a place where I was so excited and I believe women could be in ministry, but I did not experience that. And really uh, several years into it, my eyes were just opened even more as I was watching uh, friends of mine um, get opportunities um, to do things that women weren't. I would go to conferences and it would be all men up there sharing and preaching. Um, and I really struggled to have an imagination of what a woman pastor looked like. And so in around 2010, when I was at Northern Theological Seminary, this really became a burden of mine um, because I just I just felt like the, the scales for my eyes had fallen and I started to see these systems that were sidelining women. And I just, I had a burning passion to write about it. And so it was shortly after that when I wrote the book, Emboldened, A Vision for Empowering Women in Ministry. And specifically that book is for churches um, who already affirm women in ministry. It's not a case for women. It's, it's we're beginning with the assumption that we are affirming of women in ministry, but it's one thing to affirm women in ministry. It's another thing to empower them and embolden them. Um, so it's a book where I attempt to kind of cut through uh, some of the systems that sideline women. So I was listening to this, to I think it was K-Wave um, and 107.9. And it just happened to be on in my car and it was Ask the Pastor. And they had a woman on and she was uh, not a senior pastor. She was... I think a women's pastor at her church. And the question was about women in ministry. So it of course got my attention in her response. You know, at first it seemed like she was in favor of women in ministry. And she said, now, of course we need to draw the line where God draws the line. And that is a woman being a senior pastor. And of course we know from the scripture that this is just not allowed. It is. And she put it in such a condescending way. Like it is so sickening almost. It was the way she said it for a woman to think she could be in a senior pastor role. Now I had a lot of stuff I could have said to her and I'm sure we'll cover some of those things. Um, you know, and I've talked about like the daughters of Zelophad. That was a real breakthrough thing for me. Um, when the daughters of Zelophad, you know, went to Moses and they didn't have an inheritance because there were no men in their family. There were no brothers, there were no sons. And I was born in a family of girls. And Moses said, then they get, the inheritance goes to the women. And I come from four generations of pastors. And so for me, that was huge. And that was breakthrough in my spirit. Um, I know that there's, you know, other examples. There's other things we could totally break down, Timothy, and all that. But what I want to talk to you specifically about is in the book, you talked about uh, many women pastors that go ahead, they get past it all. They just block it all out. But then they experience imposter syndrome. Explain a bit what that is. I know I battled with it a bit, overcame it. But I know that's something that a lot of women pastors feel and I think a lot of people, even women, look at women pastors and think that, that, you know, that, yeah. So I'd love you for you to explain that more and how they can overcome this and how we as pastors, women pastors, can be more supportive to our fellow women pastors. Thank you, Jenny. You know, and first, I just want to affirm, um, you know, how, how frustrating it is. Um, as a woman pastor, just to hear those things. And I can also affirm that it's real. Um, part of my story is I, I took um, 
a, a church. I, I had the opportunity to senior pastor a church in Southern California. It was a church of 1900, and it was just this really big deal in our denomination, and we were so excited. It felt like a, a shift in trajectory, and um, right out of the gate, 600 people left the church um, because of my gender. And, and it was because when I was mm -hmm. preaching. Yeah, yeah, and it was because, yeah. oh, no, not a, not a female senior pastor. Uh, for many, the office of the senior pastor was where they drew the line. We had female pastors on our staff, um, but they drew the line with the female senior pastor. And so that's a great lead. And no wonder women are dealing with imposter syndrome. Right. Um, imposter syndrome is, is um, it's not something I came up with. It's a term that psychologists use. Um, it's, it's a feeling of, you know, you walk into a space and you feel like an imposter, like you don't belong. Um, and if you end up in a space um, uh, where you feel like you don't belong, often at times you feel like you got there by accident um, and that soon you're going to get found out. So here's an example. Let's just say that you are a woman in ministry and you've been invited to a committee in your denomination or within your church's leadership where decisions get to be made. And you walk in and you sit at the table and you're at a table of men uh, and, and you just think, oh my goodness, I am so honored to be here. How did I get here? It must be a mistake. They must have invited me because... I uh, tricked them somehow. Um, soon, eventually, they're going to realize that I don't belong here and I'm going to get found out and this is just going to end in failure. And so um, mm -hmm. it, it's not just women that deal with imposter syndrome. Men can as well. Um, scholars will note that it's it's most often women and people of color um, in spaces like that, that feel that angst, like that they are going to eventually get found out. And it can be overcome. And it is something that I have had to work through um, for many, many years. And it, it requires just a lot of self-awareness. It requires, uh, and that's, you know, that's, that's, that's grown by the grace of God. Um, through tools, maybe say like, you know, the Enneagram or therapy for me and prayer and reading scripture and learning how to receive that I am who God says I am and that God has gifted me in the ways that only God can gift me. And so imposter syndrome certainly can be overcome. Um, you know, this is not just a feeling women have for for no reason. Um, this has occurred and immediately made me think about when Beth Moore uh, was speaking at a conference. She was the only woman on the docket. I mean, how challenging that would even be for her as it's, right. you know, to rise up in that. Right. But then to get called out publicly by right. John MacArthur, and he basically called her a sinner, a wretched woman. She needs to sit down and shut up and learn her place publicly. And he was a, he was applauded. He was applauded, mind blown. I mean, I kind of went on a bit of a tirade for a little bit on the internet, did some videos yeah, after too. that one. Me too. Like, okay, so you know what I'm talking about. So yeah. I'm, I'm only bringing that up to say, there's a good reason why women feel that way because they feel like that could happen to them yeah. at any moment. Someone like a yeah. John MacArthur with honestly, my, my, excuse me for saying it. I know, I believe it's a spirit of Satan. It's a satanic spirit to rise up and be mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. ugly and angry Yes. To, I know it's probably wrong to say that, but it's just what how I calls them as I sees them. So you know, if you're going to be that way, and so you know, God forbid that we ever do anything like that. But of course, it reinforces this feeling in women. Well, this helps kind of segue um, because the next thing I want to talk about is gender norms, right? So a lot of us might know 
um, in our heads anyway, we might understand that gender norms are created by society. However, they're so powerful that we normalize them, or at least in our thinking and our actions. So just thinking about how you mentioned nurturing traits um, or traits that may be considered, hey, that's masculine or that's feminine, um, but especially in light of women in leadership and vice versa. Um, so I want to ask a question, two, two questions. The first one is just, what's been your experience um, with these traits? Um, how do they reflect the image of God? Do you see them in scripture? And can they be beneficial? Um, so whether it's feminine traits or masculine traits, but that, that idea of nurturing traits, how, how should that impact leadership and where do they show up in scripture or in leadership? Yeah. You know, and as you said, like some of these gender norms are constructs that we create, that we normalize. Um, I happen to be rather girly in the way that society says is I, you know, my guilty pleasures, I go and get my nails done every week. Um, I wear makeup. I um, love to wear heels when I preach, but those are things that that society builds up and calls feminine, which, um, you know, that's we know that's not always been the case. It is a cultural construct. Um, but then, you know, when you you drill down deeper, it gets so much more complex than that. Like, I think we could probably agree that a lot of those things are cultural constructs. But then when you drill down and you start talking about other things, well, you know, gender is is formed, you know, biologically, um, culturally, um, through nurture and nature. And so when you talk about things like nurturing, like it's really complex. Like I have friends that are moms that struggle. They don't always feel like they're the most nurturing mothers. Mm. Um, yes, like we could talk about like historically, like, you know, women do often take on nurturing traits. I happen to view pastoring very much through the lens of mothering because I am a mother. I have children. And so I happen to view like pastoring through the lens of nurturing. And, you know, a lot of these, these gender constructs, however, that um, we, we, we often sometimes project onto women, um, when women take them on into roles of leadership, it can be really confusing for people, right. you know? And so for example, with a male, like if a male gets like strong, we say, well, he is a strong leader. If a woman gets strong in her leadership, we say other things that aren't so kind. Um, if, if a man um, becomes nurturing in his leadership, which by the way, is a beautiful thing. We see a nurturing God. We see God um, being compared to like a mother um, eagle. And um, we have all these incredible nurturing and maternal images of God in scripture. But when a man in today's society uh, leads in a nurturing way, we say he's soft or weak. And so we've got to be really careful about how we talk about some of these gender norms. But also, I believe that women and men can work to pierce through these cultural constructs and give the church, the bride of Christ, a greater and less anemic imagination of how women and men can lead. I think one of the ways we see that is even in the diversity of kinds of women in scripture, right? Yes. And I think you talk about that a yes. lot. So for example, some of my favorites are the Hebrew midwives who usually, yeah. um, I would say they use stereotypes and stupid man thinking kind of against the Pharaoh, right? It's just like, I just don't know about these Israelite women. The babies just come too fast, you know? Yeah. Um, or people like Holda, who is a truth teller in a time when there's quote unquote, bigger prophets in a time when there's a new king trying to institute all this stuff. But yeah, yeah I know you talk about diversity of women. Um, I don't know if you want to speak more about that, some of your favorites. Um, I know one you highlight is Deborah. So I don't know if you want to go in that direction. Yeah, I mean, Deborah, talk about a fierce leader. 
you know, she's the one um, in the office place where no one wants to step up and she's like, come on, dudes, like, let's go, let's go for this. But also she is a woman of God. She is, she is a fierce leader and she is a fierce woman of God. Um, the moment that she responds to God, she responds and she praises God for God's goodness and God's greatness. And oftentimes people will say, well, you know, God had to use Deborah because Barack, you know, he he refused. Um, but that is just a crazy idea. God uses whoever God wants to use. And we see God use women throughout scripture, fierce, fierce women, strong leaders. Um, Esther is so similar in the way that she is so emboldened by God. And then we also have examples like Mary, my goodness, Mary, mm -hmm. mother of Jesus, oh. who, you know, Scott McKnight often talks about, we have these images of Mary as though she's just this soft-spoken um, Madonna, you know, figure. And yes, like she is, is beautiful and wonderful in our imaginations, but man, was she fierce, yes. the Magnificat. Holy moly. I mean, the way that she proclaims the Magnificat is just fierce and just bring it on, Lord. Like, yes, let's go. You know, the rich are going to go away, you know, empty handed. And, you know, the the poor are going to be lifted up. And she proclaims such a subversive idea of the coming kingdom of God that Jesus would inaugurate. And so all throughout scripture, we have strong and emboldened and fierce women who often break through some of these gender norms. In Catholicism, I really didn't have this affinity to Mary, uh, but until I realized her in that fierce way, when I could uh, relate to how difficult and how amazing this decision was to almost immediately say, do unto me as you will. I mean, I was like, oh my God, this is, this is no joke. And then like, think about the whole story. I mean, you can think of it. She's giving birth in a barn, then she gets right up and then goes to on a donkey to the Egypt. I mean, it's like, it's like, come on, this is insane. I mean, like, I mean but this, she just kept saying yes and yes and yes. I yep. mean, that's, that's amazing. Really. It really is. Yes. Uh, uh, but I will, I will, I will, I also love what you say in the book about how you sort of, a, you deal with some of the criticism, John MacArthur aside, uh, is, is, is not necessarily to be filled with bitterness or frustration or anger potentially, but really love as, as, as Mary purports love subversively. And I would love for you to explain that for people because that's pretty powerful. Yeah. When things like John MacArthur happen, which it happens way more um, than, than what we know um, it, it's, for many women, it's the everyday reality of what they experience. Women are told to go home all the time in churches. And so when this happened, when resistance happens, it cuts deeply and we feel the pain deeply. And when we are hurt and right. when it's personal, some of our most natural responses um, can come out in anger and frustration and sadness and grief. What we do with that is we have a choice of what we're going to do with that. And so one of the things I made the commitment early on when I realized that resistance was going to be a reality was I made the decision to not allow bitterness and anger to be my banner, um, to not lead with that. Really Does it mean I wouldn't feel angry? F for sure. Um, there are those kind of knee-jerk uh, re responses that we all have. Um, but what we do with that is, is different, you know, because bitterness grows. 
Um, bitterness begins to control our thoughts and our hearts and our actions. And before we know it, um, we are leading in such a way that is 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 hard to to create movement because angry people impact us. When when you have someone that's yelling at you and is angry at you, it's really it's at least for me, it's it gets really hard to listen. Um, and that's something for me that takes growth to learn how to listen and say, man, like something really painful must be going on. Um, but I think that there are alternative ways to leading with bitterness. That's totally true. But I think it is different for a woman because I was listening to this uh, podcast about Mars Hill. I don't know if you know Mars Hill, but uh, Mark Driscoll. I've been listening to that his, podcast. Yes. <laughs> okay. So one of his main characteristics, characteristics is that he yelled at people and yeah. he was angry and he had the fastest growing church. In America, I mean, thousands upon thousands. Of, well, how many how many campuses did they have? But if a woman was doing that, people would be very upset. Oh, it's upsetting when a woman yells. It hurt, and that's partially, I think, is the maternal, the yeah. motherly thing. Because I think, as a child, you do when mama yells, you get it. It hurts your heart. So, but again, that's just another one of those, you know, because we say we don't want to be yelled at. But how does a man build a church screaming at people every Sunday? Because he was a man. Yeah, because it's it's a very toxic idea of masculinity, which when we weave in even a toxic, there can be toxic femininity as well. Um, and so when a man yells, he's strong, he's brave. Yeah. When, a, when a woman yells, she's, well, yeah. you can fill in the word. <laughs> we know the word that gets assigned often. Joseph, I know you had more questions. No, I mean, I'm just like, uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be at the church where the guy yelled either, but that's just me. But, <laughs> but um, yes, well, I like the idea of what about them, you know, that you mentioned in the book, when you sort of reflecting on how, on how to deal with these frustrating situations, this anger, how can women not just survive, but thrive in ministry? Yeah. Well, you know, when there's so much that comes at us, um, the pushback being sidelined, there are things that we can be doing to cut through that. Um, number one, surround yourself with women who understand. Uh, before the Me Too movement was a thing, I used to always say there is something so powerful about sitting and talking with someone that says, yeah, me too. I, I've been there. Like I know what it's like to be in an environment where I feel unheard or to be in an environment where I'm not welcome or to be in an environment where I have gifts that aren't being used. And so I have a group of friends of other women pastors where, you know, we will we'll reach out to each other and we'll vent for a few moments um, and then we'll pray for one another. Uh, journaling is another wonderful practice to, you know, we see this in scripture to honestly come before God with our honest laments and pains and griefs. Um, but then also prayer, you know, Jesus tells us to pray for those who persecute you. And I'm not necessarily saying that when women are being sidelined, it's persecution. Um, I wouldn't say that. However, I, I do think there's something so powerful when we pray for those who are sidelining us and hurting us and to pray uh, for those who are uh, maybe not welcoming us. It's a transformative experience. Um, and so, you know, we can make mm. an, a, a deliberate choice to not choose bitterness and to pray instead. We can make a deliberate choice to not choose bitterness and reach out to sisters instead. We can make a deliberate choice to not choose bitterness and do productive things. Um, to pray, to read scripture, um, and to have practices in our life that are healthy. 
So in the in the book, you talk about the idea of, you know, coming to God and saying, why are people, you know, why are people criticizing me? Why don't they, why are they saying these things about, you know, pastoral, women in pastoral leadership? And really God kind of said to you, you know, why are you focused on them and not what I've called you to do, so to speak? I'd love for you to talk about that with people, because I think it's great to stay focused on where God has led you. Yeah, it can be really difficult when we still live in a, an environment where tokenism is still a reality, yes. where there are less women at the table um, than men. And so oftentimes there's a lot of women who are longing for a seat at the table. They're longing for, you know, maybe a place to preach or teach. And so oftentimes we can look around and think, man, there's there's all of these other women like they're getting opportunities. What about me? Um, or, um, you know, we could also get in a space as women where, you know, we get so focused on those who oppose us. We get so focused on maybe the men who aren't welcoming us to the table that we get distracted from the very mission that God has called us to. And so oftentimes someone will say to me, well, what's the best advice that you, you can, you can give young women in ministry. And I always say, take the next faithful step because we often get so distracted about where we need to be in 10 years, or we get so distracted about what they're doing, or we get so distracted about fighting uh, for the cause of women in ministry, and we lose focus of the mission. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, this is about the mission of God. Uh, this is about joining God on mission. And so just take that next faithful step. So if that next faithful step is going to seminary or taking a seminary class or um, looking for a mentor or reading a book or developing yourself or whatever it is, take that next faithful step. Mm -hmm. Tara Beth, I think it's important that we address that this isn't just our opinions because we're women and we just want to be right and we want to be heard and we want what we want. The people that are in the camp like John MacArthur and the thousands upon thousands that are in that camp are in that camp because... Oftentimes they believe they biblically are correct. The, the 600 that walked out of the church when you became the senior pastor, the countless people when I would be, when my husband would introduce me, we would have guests come when we launched the church and week after week and he'd say, um, you know, now you're senior, your lead pastor, my wife, Jenny Stavali, and we would watch families get up and the dad go, come on, we're out. You know, and the whole row would leave and I'd have to stand there and preach, you know, and, and, I had to come to a place of recognizing that they're, they're believing certain things based on scripture. And there are scriptures yeah. that have led people. Of course, I, I love that everyone hangs their hat on basically one or two. I mean, the Corinthian scripture can easily be broken down. We can talk about that. But, you know, of course, Timothy. Um, and so John has this foundation. He has people captured because of that and the other leaders that have that what have been some biblical things that you've like so so that we were not we're, so we're proving this is not just our opinion and we're we're not twisting the bible because i think that's what people think we're doing that we're changing the bible and we're twisting the bible just to fit our personal cultural narrative i would never do that i love the bible too much i love the word of god too much i would never i would not twist the word of god just to promote myself ever because i stand before god but i think people think that women in our position that's what we're doing the only way we could possibly do this so i would love to know your biblical kind of the biblical graces that you've been given the words that you've been given that support where you are at as a senior pastor 
Yeah, there's a couple of places that we can begin. Um, but the, the, the greatest place to begin is just simply ask, what did women do in scripture? Uh, what did women do? So, you know, we can we can drill down on particular passages like from Timothy um, or Corinthians or uh, various places or even in Genesis. Um, but then we can say, OK, is is this um, prescriptive or is this descriptive? Um, and when we when we look at like the description of scripture, we see like women doing all sorts of amazing things. We said we see them leading. We see them teaching. We see them prophesying. But even more so than that, one of the, the most helpful things for me is identifying within the larger story of God of knowing when something is descriptive of the backdrop of the story of God and when something is prescriptive for all time. You know, and so when mm -hmm. something that we see, you know, with, within the beginning, of the story of God and we see the fall come into play and we see these curses when God gives these curses over Adam and Eve, when these curses enter the scene, God isn't like now we We've arrived, you know, Eve, you are going to, you're going to have to long for your husband. Your husband's going to rule over you. We've at last arrived and this is how things are supposed to be. Um, but instead, like these are curses. This is not the ideal. This is not how God wants them to be. This is a result of the fall. And so we see then throughout scripture, these curses play out in a descriptive reality, never a prescriptive reality. And even when we get into the household codes, codes in Ephesians and in Colossians, and it talks about submission, again, these are descriptive realities um, because we see more pre prescriptive realities, for example, in Ephesians chapter five, verse 21, when it says um, all Christians submit to one another. And mm -hmm. so then what Paul is doing when he's talking about women, you know, wives submitting to your husbands, he is describing how the houses were um, in that day. And so one of the most helpful things for me has been simply asking, what did women do in scripture? And when we're reading scripture in light of the entire story of God, is it prescriptive or is it descriptive? I love a, a quote I read, and I, I want to attribute it to who said it, but I don't remember. But I just I want to share this as a general hermeneutical rule of thumb. If your interpretation, uh, your interpretation of a passage contradicts other passages in Scripture and basic lines of philosophical reasoning, you've yet to reach the proper conclusion. And I love that quote as I've been using that in our Veritas series. I kind of say it, you know, about so many scriptures, if it contradicts the story of the Bible. Like I was dealing with this when somebody was saying, well, don't you know, we're equal to God. We are not below God. He's not above us. We are 100% God's equal. And I was like, okay, but you're basing that on one scripture taken out of context. Let's look at the whole story of the Bible, you know, and that's really what I think you can apply to Timothy. So how do we, as women in pastoral leadership, how can we help women coming up in ministry to have these greater understandings. Right now, it seems like in so many contexts, women are fighting for single seats at the table. And again, like the culture of tokenism has created this when there's not very many women, women often are pitted up against one another because they think there's only room for one. But instead, we need to come together and realize that we need each other, that um, studies show that tokenism never changes the system. 
Um, token, tokenism never brings mm. change that we need multiple voices of color or multiple women at the table for things to really shift for the better and to really see this more beautiful mosaic. And so we need women to come alongside one another and embolden one another. And we can do that if you're at a table, if you're at a meeting um, and another woman says something, we can highlight what they say. Uh, we can celebrate the voices of other women. Uh, we can share their stories. We can encourage them on social media. Uh, we can talk about them. We can encourage them. Um, I do think that there is a massive need for a network or cohort of women uh, for safe spaces to come together, but we truly need uh, to come alongside one another and help one another. Well, maybe great. you and I should just create that. <laughs> that sounds great. <laughs> that sounds good. Um, thinking about your marriage and your pastoral role, um, how has that interacted in the past? You know, what have you had to learn? Um, yeah, how how do your parents how parents how do how have your husbands supported you? How do they find their way as well? And how well, how do you guys make that work? And what have you learned practically that impacts and and helps you both as women senior pastors? Yeah, so my husband and I are very much partners in ministry, um, and he's not a pastor. He's not a preacher. He's um, he he's he's not a, you know, a, a biblical scholar, um, but he does love Jesus. He does love the church very much. He is a, a great churchman, a great layman and a great supporter. And we feel very much like partners and it looks different depending on every season that we're in. I can remember some seasons where he was waiting outside of the classroom while I was in seminary, um, holding our baby boy so I could step out and nurse him when it was time. Um, or I can remember him, you know, bouncing one of our baby boys in the back, um, as I was preaching. Uh, there's been seasons where he's the one attending parent-teacher conferences. There's been seasons where I am. Um, currently in our marriage, he's the, ones, he's the one that does the laundry. He's the one that sews. Um, uh, we we take turns cleaning. Um, he never wants me in the kitchen baking because I am the absolute worst baker on the planet and I mess it up every single time. Um, but for us, mutual submission is, is constantly changing depending on the season that we're in. And my husband wrote in the book about what this looks like for him. He feels like it's his Christian duty and calling um, to be able to create spaces for me to serve the church. And that's what partnership looks like for us. I had a good friend that was uh, a pastor as well, but her husband was the senior pastor, but she would try to tell me prophetically, you know, I just, I just, I just in the spirit see that the day's going to come where Brian will really step up and take that position as senior pastor in the church. And no offense to you. I don't mean it against you. I believe in you, but you know, and it was like, I know where that's coming from. And that honestly made my husband more mad than it made sure. me. Yeah. He got very angry at that. Yeah. And so um, he's, you know, he's been a wonderful support. You know, the dynamic at home, we've had talks about this, you know, about submission. And I was taught submission as a wife um, to my husband. And that was how I was raised. And so the balance is growing for me. But for me, I think that helps our marriage because I'm able to say to people, listen, I'm not this domineering woman that's always in charge. When I'm the pastor, I'm the pastor. But when we're home, he's the, he's the priest of our house. And I honor him as the priest of the house. And for me, I think that's helped people to see that I'm not just some controlling woman. Um, I wanted to, to switch gears a little bit now and talk about the book Radiant, um, because it, it deals with a subject that was really on my heart a lot coming into this year and coming into this new season of the, of the show that we were going to do is about the authenticity of our Christian witness, just as a church as a whole. 
um, and and the the danger we might be in in making sure that we are not concerned about our numbers and our attendance and our our, our fog machine or whatever, but more about what are we doing to be authentic witnesses of the radiance of Jesus? Yeah, I think that we could probably all agree on the reality that um, our country is in crisis and that uh, the church as we know it is in crisis. And, um, you know, thousands of young people are leaving the church in droves. Um, we are we are in just it's so hard to wrap my brain around how polarized things are. And um, there's a lot of hurt young people um, leaving. And whether that is for the rise of hyper-Christian nationalism or the political politicalization of um, our faith, um, or, you know, we have these, these leaders uh, that are, you know, rising and falling as we've listened to in podcasts um, or sex scandals in the church, we, we are having a crisis and young people are leaving. And that is because we've lost the credibility of our witness. We as a people of God are to shine radiant. We as a people of God are to be a light. Um, we are to be a living alternative. The world ought to look at the church and say there's something beautiful and radiant and different about the church. That's right. And right now, those in the world are looking at the church and thinking they've got to get it together because the the, the, the Jesus that I heard about growing up, um, they're not looking like that. Um, it's a dimly lit light. And so uh, Radiant Church is about calling the church to shine radiantly and to be the church that Jesus believes we can be. And I also wrote it for those who are, you know, down this path of deconstruction. Um, deconstruction and de dismantling is a popular um, phrase right now. It's common. It's not new. And one of my concerns as a pastor is we're watching a generation deconstruct without end and they're throwing in the towel altogether. And so mm -hmm. Radiant Church is written for those, um, to those who have participated, those of us who have participated in this diminished witness. And it's written for those who are deconstructing their faith to call them to a reconstructed vision of what the church can be. I love that. So we don't deconstruct everything. We celebrate yes. what our what our what our, our witness should be. Yes. But really what you talk about is looking inward, not yes. defending ourselves all the time, but really in humility, looking right. inward. And what are some of the issues that you view are truly hurting and impacting our witness today? And and maybe if possible, what are some things we can do to kind of combat that, or at least not just be aware of it, but what are things that we can do so we don't have people who are deconstructing and, and giving up on church? Sure. The church has rooted herself uh, within storylines that are in many ways a distorted or deformed um, story of what we see in the story of God. We've hitched ourselves to very um, world, I mean, worldly ideas, uh, meaning ideas that aren't necessarily um, scriptural or Jesus-like ideas. And so, you know, we could talk a lot about, you know, our idolatry for excess, our hunger for success, and the ways that we have hijacked that. And we have, um, we are bowing down to the altar of success in our churches. Uh, churches that get the most attention are those who have the highest attendance, the most money in the biggest buildings. Um, and so we're counting that as success. Uh, we've rooted ourselves in the storyline also of hyper-individualism, that our worth um, is, or our identity um, is, is in me and, you know, my individuality alone. Um, and we have um, 
unhitched ourselves from our identity of being in the bride of Christ and the people of God and the church and that we are born into the people of God. And so what's happened because of we've rooted ourselves in this idea of hyper individualism, salvation is about me and just me getting to heaven and avoiding hell. Um, instead of this idea of thy kingdom of God coming on earth within the people of God as it is in heaven and the people of God living in an alternative way um, that it, that it catches the, you know, the, the, the weir a weir weary world's attention. And so hyper individualism bowing down to the altar of success, we could talk about this, a very dangerous thing that has entered in or has been here for a long, long time called Christian nationalism um, or the politicalization of, um, of uh, Christianity and our faith. And these are all things that we have um, adopted within our churches that have created this diminished witness. And we need to reroute ourselves in the story of God and uh, flee from some of these things that we have hitched ourselves to. Jesus began to preach and teach in Luke chapter four. We see him stand up and talk about, you know, that, that, that it, what they have heard has been fulfilled in their hearing. And then we see him and Mark standing up and saying, repent, the kingdom of God has come near. And so Jesus inaugurates the kingdom in a fresh and new way. And as Jesus journeys to the cross, we see Jesus then enter into the royal coronation in a very upside down way. And we see Jesus then ascend to the throne where he now reigns as king. And the, the kingdom of God then exists within God's people as, as the citizens of the kingdom. We have a king and we are, we are Jesus' um, uh, people and we are citizens of this kingdom of God that we live in. So then as citizens of the kingdom, while we reside um, in this land that, you know, for in my context, I live in outside of Chicago, Illinois. I am, I am a citizen of the United States of America. I abide by rules and laws, um, but never at the expense of the citizen, my citizenship of the kingdom. Um, that's what takes priority um, of living as a, a citizen of the kingdom of God. And oftentimes what I'm observing with, with, with Christians um, throughout America is we're blending them and we're putting them on the same playing field. Um, and sometimes worse, um, citizenship of the United States of America takes priority of what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of God. Now let's talk about the fullness of prayer. My most significant time of prayer happens in the morning um, after I get my kids out the door to school before I head into the office. And uh, prayer for me um, is, is most effective when I'm moving my body and so and with, with worship music in my ears. And so I'm often really, really kind of stuck in my head a lot and moving my body and listening to worship music really helps center me. And so I will head out the door. We live in the woods. You can kind of see the beautiful trees behind me. We live in the woods and I hit the trails and I'll start hiking and I'll start praising God. And I always, to center myself, I always begin with worship music uh, just to, to recenter um, my heart, my mind, and my body to the presence of God. And then after that, I'll begin praying, um, sometimes out loud. Um, I you know, I have the joy of being in the woods of it. I can talk to God out loud in a very vocal way. And when I pass people, sometimes I think, you know what, if they hear me talk, Talking to God, maybe that maybe it'll bear witness to what it means to have a relationship with God. Um, praying in community community is also really important to me with our staff, uh, where I serve at our church, um, with with small group. There's something so powerful about gathering with people and praying out loud. I pray out loud with my children. I pray out loud with my husband. Um, I pray out, out loud with others. 
Um, and that is so effective and powerful for me because sometimes what someone else prays, uh, they are praying for uh, what I cannot pray for, what I'm struggling to pray for, or maybe not have the words to pray for. Uh, and finally, writing my prayers out in journal. Um, uh, I am a journal jur- journaler, and um, most often my journaling is in the form of prayer, telling God about my day um, and asking God to drench um, my, my words as I process my day, and that God would help me to uh, form um, how I reflect on the day and think about the day ahead, um, that I would be formed more into God's likeness. And thank you so much for your continued witness, your continued ministry. Um, Again, the books are Emboldened and Radiant. Uh, They're available online as well as I'm sure uh, at Terabeth, is terabethleach.com, right? As well as as Amazon. And please continue to follow Terabeth on social media as well. And I just, as we close today, I want us all to turn inward as she suggests in the book Radiant and look humbly upon ourselves and how we can improve our individual Christian witness so that we can improve one person at a time, the whole church, so the church can truly be that radiant light for the world because you will truly live life more fully. And that's, of course, what we want you to do here and in the kingdom to come. We'll see you next time on The Full Life.